Welcome to Sea of Fire Ministries with James Myers. Today, in our fourth of a five-part series regarding salvation, James discusses Christ as our great high priest. You can find out more about our ministry by visiting us at seaoffire.org. You can also view James's latest videos on YouTube at Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope this message serves to strengthen and build up the church. Our Father and our God, as we seek to know your truth, we know your Son as priest, I ask that you make your book live to us. May your living word fill our hearts, our minds, and our souls in adoration and thanksgiving to the glory of your begotten Son. Came in the flesh, your word made flesh. Let us reflect in reverence and in truth what you have for us this day and every day henceforth, your testimony now and forever. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask Amen. Okay, now, a bit of a disclosure here. We'll be honest with you, most of uh, last week, I had developed what I thought was a fantastic message. You know, uh, we were going to consider Leviticus, you know, as many of you knew, know, a bit of a disclosure here, you know, I was saved uh, by, by reading the Bible and, you know, to argue against my sister, my oldest sister, Christian, um, and it was really once I got to Leviticus that God really started drawing me to himself. Now, this is where many of the rites, the rituals, the sacrifices, everything for the Levites, in other words, the priests, were instructed to do. You know, all of the, the ceremonies, all the rituals, everything. Now it's established unto Aaron and so forth. There's, a, there's much to be learned regarding Leviticus. And what I've learned since then is very few Christians, very few Christians, you know, even if they determine to read the Bible, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, once they get to Leviticus, you know, they start yawning. <laughs> they start lacking interest and... They'll skip ahead and so forth. And what, what I want to just say without getting into Leviticus, because God completely changed the message on Friday, and so we're not really going to be looking at Leviticus very much today. We'll, we'll consider somewhat chapter 16 regarding the Day of Atonement. However, there's much to be learned in Leviticus. Again, these are copies. These are representations. The tabernacle, the temple, all of these sacrifices, everything that God had established in the Old Testament are the copies of the real things really laid up in heaven, as we'll see in the book of Hebrews gets into. And, you know, at the end of the message, I wanted to briefly consider this man Melchizedek, and now he's basically the central figure of this message. However, what I want to, what I want to say is, again, the book of Leviticus, is as we consider Christ's priest, you know, we, we considered him as prophet, the prophet, last week, and now we are going to consider him as priest this week. There's much to be learned about him in the book of Leviticus, so I would greatly encourage you to read that, maybe with a commentary to help you along, or, you know, you can ask somebody who knows about it. Um, you can ask me. I'm more than happy to help you to the extent that I can help you. However, so, as we consider priests, Remember last week we considered prophets were spokesmen, really the mediator between God and the people. You know, they were, they were the messengers from God to the people. Now, we have never been bereft of those who, to, who are to intercede for the people to God. And that's what the priests are. That's what the priests were, okay? So, basically, God, Christ is the word of God to man, and he's also the word of man to God. Let us let us realize this as we as we consider him as prophet as as priest today. What we must start to recognize before we get to the nativity, God willing, next week, we must recognize he is the fulfillment. Not only is he the fulfillment, he he is the universal. He is he he accomplishes everything beyond that which we even knew needed to be accomplished. In, in other words, the, the history of the world has been it, philosophies, religions, and all of these are trying to see the world and find a God. You know, <laughs> as, we, as we considered, you know, there is general revelation, enough to point you to the existence of God. And then I told you, know, as, as I've made, we've made clear, there's a difference between believing in God and believing God. And now the tendency is 
to develop a god of your own liking, according to your own image. And the vastness of, of, of world history of, of the world today is still inclined toward that same enterprise. You know, we, we are less inclined to want the god who is. You know, he's not always the god we want, but he's always the god we need. You know, we we vacillate from time to time because we are sinners. But as should we be the people of God, we recognize his absolute faithfulness, his absolute goodness in the midst of things. We don't always judge all that comfortably, okay? But we, but we as, as, again, going into who Christ is as priest, what we want to recognize is, he, he brings us to God, and He is God to man, okay? He, he fulfills everything necessary. He fulfills the law and the prophets, but He, he did it in such a way that was, was not all that anticipated. As we've considered, the Jews expected this warrior king to come and rule the earth forever, and that's it. Well, Christ's mission was to do the Father's will, which was to suffer. Okay, ultimately throughout his life, even before he, he was put on that cross. And we'll, we'll speak something of that fairly briefly in, in, in the brief time that we have together today. And so instead of really looking at Leviticus 16 right now, what, what we're going to do is wait until we kind of get to these portions of, uh, in the book of Hebrews, we're really going to be focused on the book of Hebrews, those, you know, that basically the t toward the end of chapter 4, a chunk, a good chunk of chapter 5, then we'll go to chapter 7 and 8, most of the end of chapter 9, and most of the beginning of chapter 10. But we are going to, we'll, we'll, we'll consider back um, somewhat uh, uh, regarding what the, what the writer of um, Hebrews has. Now, what Leviticus 16 gets into is the Day of Atonement, or, you know, the Jews call Yom Kippur. Hopefully you've even heard of this. This would happen once a year, okay, once a year. And again, we'll wait till we get to that, but that's what chapter 16 is. So I would implore you to read that. Now, just so you know, in the beginning it says Aaron's sons died because they had offered profane fire, and you can find that out in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Okay, and, and, and he goes to Moses after that, and Moses tells him a great word um, to, to him. And so you can consider that on your own. Now, so we are going to start in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, the confession at this time is really confessing that, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Okay, and so this, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, remember, there was a veil. There was a veil between the, the holy place of the temple and the tabernacle just before you went into the most holy place. Now, now the, the writer of Hebrews, and there's, there's much discussion regarding who the writer of Hebrews is. The most popular uh, belief is that it was Paul himself. But there's enough in here to imply that it wasn't actually Paul. Um, he even says that he was a disciple of the apostles and not an apostle himself. So, you know, it could have been just a companion of Paul, but we don't know. We don't know ultimately who the writer is. However, he's, point, he's saying the, that we have a great high priest, and let's remember that, who has passed through the heavens. So not only through the veil, through what the veil was really showing. It was the shadow of the real thing. He got, Christ has not just passed through the veil into the, temp, the holy place in the temple. He has passed through the veil to sit at the right hand of God. That is the veil that we shall pass as well into glory. Okay, so Christ is gone to bring us with him. Okay, so we shall pass that veil. Now, what he's saying, though, also, now, the high priest was supposed to be from the son, sons of Aaron. Okay, there's a Levitical priesthood, there's an Aaronic priesthood, and there's a, then there's a Zadok uh, uh, priesthood that we're not going to consider today. I plan to, but we're not going to. All right? So uh, the, the, one of the sons of Aaron ultimately become, is, is called to be a high priest. And we're just going to have to keep that in the back of our minds. Okay, this one, the, the high priest is the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies, and he did it only once a year, okay, and we will consider something of that, but Jesus is our great 
high priest. He is not just a high priest. He is our great high priest. All of what the high priests were, again, you know, every, all of the Old Testament, all the prophets, all the kings, all the priests pointed forward to, we need a perfect prophet. We need a perfect priest. We need a perfect king. So Christ is our perfect, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Christ came in the flesh and was tempted just as we are. One of the great things about the priesthood and to have you know, ministers and clergy to go to is that these men understand. These men have also been tempted. You know, that, that we are all fallen, and so we have that familiarity with each other. You're not, God willing anyway, coming to someone who is going to judge you. He was going to counsel you through the Word of God, and that's what the priests were for. But the writer is basically saying, he understands your temptations even more than ministers. Christ can, can understand, can sympathize with our temptations. He can only empathize with our sin, which makes him far more faithful, far more apt to even have compassion on us because he never actually fell into sin. He was tempted just like we saw in the wilderness and at the Garden of Gethsemane where he's sweating out drops of blood and he's asking his father, please, if there's, if there's any possibility that this cup might pass from me, Please, let it pass, but not my will, yours be done. He was tempted. He, you know, again, we considered that fairly briefly. But he was tempted in the wilderness. Not by Saul. Saul wasn't chasing him around the wilderness. Now, our picture of the wilderness, real quickly, we, we think of the desert. You know, whenever you see depictions of the devil coming to Jesus in movies and so forth, it's like these hills of sand and so forth. The Judean wilderness was nothing of the sort. It was rocks. And it still is. Rocks full of scorpions and snakes. This is a terrible time that he's alone, where he's alone for 40 days and for 40 nights. Remember, we considered that somewhat briefly as compared to Adam and Eve in this garden of paradise. And they had, they had companionship. You know, they had a relationship. They were not alone and they still fell. Christ was alone for 40 days, 40 nights by himself, being tempted by the devil himself. And he still did not fall away. Praise be to God our Father and for sending His Son to do that which we could never do. Christ's obedience, Christ's obedience, Christ's righteousness is far more than just fulfilling and doing what was necessary by the law. It was also suffering in a cruel, sinful world as much as can be bemoaned about the testimony found in Scripture, Christ also suffers that self-same world. Okay, and that is part of His obedience. It's not just the cross. That is not the only place Christ suffered. And we'll kind of get into, well, just in case, because I'm inclined to forget this. So, so Christ, in His suffering, in his fulfillment of the law. Remember, we, we considered somewhat briefly that if all Christ did was die on the cross, we are still in our sins. We must be imputed righteousness in, as well. So there's a negative aspect to salvation. There's a salvation from, and there's a salvation to, right? So why, why didn't God just send his son in the flesh at 33 years old and say, okay, go, go hang on the cross, because he had to fulfill all righteousness. He had to be tempted just as we are. And when he went to John the Baptist, and John the, ba John the Baptist is like, I think we got this twisted. You're out to, for me to baptize you. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to be baptizing me. But, God, but Christ says, so let it be to fulfill all righteousness. I am my people. I am here for my people. I am here to do all that which, that which God is commanding the people. And I, and I am here to fulfill all of this perfectly. So... Let's just continue to remember this it, it, so that we can see Christ in his more fuller light, okay? Okay, so let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's great. We're through three verses. and Okay, just so you know, let us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. The book of Hebrews 
is written to first and second century Jews who were always going to the temple, knew about the temple, knew about the priesthood, knew about the sacrifices, knew about the ceremonies, knew about the days of feastings, knew about all these things. And the writer is saying, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, they know what the writer's talking about. They're talking about, he's talking about the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go. And they would be killed. They're not even allowed in the temple, much less the most holy place. The writer is saying, let us come boldly. That which, that which should engender fears, fear, that which should manifest fear. So the, praying to God ought not to be this passive thing that we do when it's most convenient. Praying to God must be a solemn, solemn thing. We are going into the presence of the holy, righteous, perfect, eternal God. And look, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with praying in your car, but if all you're doing is praying in your car and, you know, even interceding for other people, and that's great, to go before the presence of God, to, to, to submit to Him and, and, and seek his, his intercession, intercede for yourself, intercede for other people. We must know Him and see Him for who He is. We would, none of us, if we love somebody, you know, I, I wouldn't only spend my time with my wife in my car. I wouldn't spend my time only with my wife when it was convenient for me or when I felt like it, when it was most convenient. I want to spend as much time with her as I can. Now, there's no fear or trepidation, so to speak. She's not absolutely righteous. She's, she's wonderful. Okay, she's amazing. I love her to death. However, she's not perfectly righteous, so there's no fear to go before her. There ought to be a fear. There must be a fear when we are sinful people going before a holy and righteous God. But the writer's saying, now that Christ has gone through the heavens, gone through the veil, let us come boldly. Not arrogantly, not bombastically, but boldly. Just like, remember in the book of Acts, that they were asking, they were praying for the boldness to testify. Same thing. We want to come boldly, we, securely, trusting in our Savior, knowing that that access has now been granted by our great high priest. And that's basically what the writer's saying. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. There are many different kinds of offerings. Okay, There are free will offerings, thanksgiving offerings, all sorts of offerings, not just an offering for sin. There are drink offerings, all sorts of offerings. Again, I'd planned on going, getting into, but we're not. So th this is what it's talking about, both gifts and sacrifices. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Really meekness. Look, when Christ came, he left his throne, he left his glory to become weak like we are, to come in the flesh to know weakness. We must remember that, and we'll, uh, we'll make these things more clear as we go along. Because of this, he is required as, as for the people, so also for himself, he, he's talking about typical high priest, uh, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Just so you know, this is somewhat ironic for this writer to write this at this time, because at this time, many people are taking this honor upon themselves. It, it became a political deal. You know, Ananias and Sophia, Caiaphas and all of these other high priests were really instituted by the king. You know, Herod and Antipas, all the Agrippa, all of them instituted them as high priests. They were not chosen by God. They were chosen by fallen kings, tyrannical kings, as we have considered in the book of Acts. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, it was God who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That is in Psalm 2, verse 7. And he also said in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's in Psalm 110, verse 4. Just so you know, that psalm is a very short psalm, but that's the one that begins, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And that's where Christ says, you know, if, if, the, if the Christ is the son of David, how is David calling him Lord? And he refers to that passage, you know, Lord said to my Lord, again, 
uh, Yahweh said to my Adonai. That's the Hebrew. Yahweh said to my Adonai. They're both Lord, you know, uh, but, but that's, what, that, that's how it begins. Now, let's consider Melchizedek fairly brief, briefly. It's a very short account, um, which is found in chapter 14 of the book of uh, Genesis, verses 18 through 20. It, it's, it's just kind of thrown in here in the, in the narrative. Just so you know, this is following just after um, Abraham had taken 312 of his servants, his men, Lot, his nephew, remember, was living in Sodom for a time, and a bunch of kings came and raided that area, and Lot was taken captive. So Abraham gets a bunch of his men, joins these other kings, and destroys them, absolutely destroys them. And so he has a bunch of, the, well, he doesn't take any of the spoils, but this, this king, Melchizedek, comes on the scene just after that. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, bread and wine, he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So Abraham gave him a tithe of all. And we'll get into this more. But Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. His name, that's his name, but it, it's translated king of righteousness. And the book of Hebrews will make it also clear that he is also the king of Salem. Salem means peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. And he brings out bread and wine to, to Abraham. Okay, th th this is screaming Christ. This is screaming Christ, okay? Just before we even consider what the writer of Hebrews is saying, I wanted to give you the account, this very brief account. The only other time he's mentioned in the Bible is in that 110th Psalm, where it says, you are going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, okay? So, and the writer's going to get into this more, you know, more fully. So we're going to wait until we get there. But that, that's what he's referring to. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement, vehement cries and tears to him, who was, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, this is, we have to understand in the Greek specifically but what, what the writer is saying. Christ knew obedience. Just like, you know, we considered, um, you know, with Adam and Eve, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve already knew that it was good to obey God and evil to disobey God. They did not eat, need to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil to know that it was good to obey God and evil to disobey God. Same thing here. Christ didn't actually learn. He fulfilled his obedience. His obedience was realized when he was when uh, when he was offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. In other words, so in that Garden of Gethsemane, he's asking vehemently crying with tears and bleeding sweats drops of blood just so you know even luke the physician refers to this and this happens this has happened where a man or woman is suffering great anguish something that we are not familiar with actually you know many many terrible things have happened to all of us uh, all of us um some some far worse than others um but we actually don't know anything about the anguish that Christ himself went through on that day, just before he was delivered and taken to the cross or to be taken to his trial. He was in great anguish of soul and crying out to his father, but he did not learn obedience. Okay, let, let's just remember that he, he, he fulfilled absolute obedience. Okay, that which, that which the Old Testament was pointing forward to and, 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 and encouraging the people to obey was fulfilled absolutely through Christ. Okay, he was never tempted in glory. He's never been tempted until he was brought down here. So he's learning the obedience that is necessary for us. That way he can sympathize. That way he can have compassion for his people. And having been, having been perfected, again, okay, he was already perfect, he's eternally perfect, but again, through what he did, through fulfilling his, his mission, doing the will of the Father, again, my meat and my drink is to do the will of the Father, that's all Christ was here for, okay, that's all, that was his meat and his drink, that was his life, that was his being, that's all he focused on, that's all he cared about is to do the will of his Father. And having done that perfect, perfectly, now the, the, the means of grace have now been perfected. Let me put it that way. 
He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Then he goes into their dullness of hearing, and we will jump to chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king, king of peace, just like we were talking about, without father, without mother, without gene genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." So this record of Melchizedek, this is again, this is all that's written in the Bible. Now, just so you know, one of the biggest problems of the early church, or you know, one of the causes of debate, is that priests must only come from the tribe of Levi. You know, Aaron's sons, so to speak, they must only come from the tribe of, uh, of Levi. As we all know, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, which makes him a legitimate king. Okay, now what the writer's really pointing to, pointing to, is there was a priest, all right? There was a priest far before Levi ever was even around. And another argument I would just make on, on top of this is Noah offered sacrifices just as he came out of the, out, out of the ark. He, he built an altar and he offered up sacrifices. Abraham built altars all over the place. Isaac did too. So they were also priests, but the writer didn't get on that. He just talks about Melchizedek. However, so this man, this man in, in the Bible, has no beginning of days, he has no genealogy. Now, this man, obviously, now there's much to be said about this man, Melchizedek, and different interpretations, Jewish interpretations, apocalyptic interpretations, eschatological interpretations, all the rest, and that we're not gonna get into, okay? Except for another time, God willing. However, what the writer is saying, this Melchizedek appears in the Bible seemingly without any beginning and without end. And he serves as priest continually. Let's remember that. That's what the writer says. He serves as a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. In other words, Abraham tithed to this man Melchizedek. All the Jews know that Abraham is the father of the faith, right? The, Abraham is their father. Abraham is the greatest, ultimately, apart from Moses, who was the giver of the law. However, Abraham, they see as their father. God had, had promised a seed through Abraham, and so they always see Abraham as the quint, their quintessential father of Judaism, okay? Which is absolutely right. So, you know, Abraham is the father of the faith, okay? Um, so, whom he, so he even gave the tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. In other words, this Melchizedek took tithes. You know, priests are supposed to take the tithes from the people, and that's fine. That's according to the law. That's absolutely right. However, this man, who was not of the tribe of Levi, Levi wasn't even born, you know, he was taking the tithes from Abraham, not just the common people, but from the father of the faith, okay? So, you know, without genealogy, is not derived from, uh, from them, from the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. See, this is why... I don't say bless you when you sneeze. I don't really see any problem. I don't see the point in it. It's not really rational to me. However, a blessing is not to be thrown out whimsically. It's it's supposed to be given the benediction, you know, kind of a thing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you rest. It's a benediction coming from the minister to the people. The bless the greater in that respect blesses the lesser and, and and so the writer's pointing to the fact that melchizedek is obviously greater than our patriarch abraham i know this is hard for you jews to understand and appreciate and believe but this is the case look at it beyond all contradiction you know any rational thought will conclude this um uh, where, where? Okay, here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So in other words, not only is he greater than these Levites, but the but Levi being in the loins of Abraham, Levi was his great-grandson, Abraham's great-grandson, but being in the loins of Abraham, technically, get paid tithes to Melchizedek as well. 
Okay, and that's what the writer's saying. As great and, and as essential as you as you you think, because according to the law, the Levites are supposed to be the priests. Let's look back to our patriarch, to our father Abraham, and what happened to him with this with this man with this priest king, Melchizedek. Now there's no history of a priest king. That is the only time he is the high priest of God, even Abraham's God. Okay, and and he's king in the Old Testament. He is the only one. Who's the priest king? Okay, so the writer's making this clear. One of the things, why, one of the reasons why I wanted to spend a little bit more time on Melchizedek is we're going to consider him as priest, that Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. Okay, so Melchizedek really embodies priest and king. Okay, so we'll consider that a little bit more next week, God willing. However, this kind of affords us a little bit of a glimpse into the kingship of Christ as well. He was priest and a king. And, and in the Psalms, in the Psalms, in the 110th Psalm, it promises the Messiah to come will be, in the, will be in the order, the priest in order of Melchizedek. Okay. Therefore, in perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the, the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? In other words, you know, if this is so great, if, if this sacrificial system, if this ceremonial system is one meant to perfect us, why should there ever arise a Melchizedek? Why do we have a Melchizedek in the Bible? If, if it's all supposed to stream from this Levitical tribe, from the tribe of Levi, why is there a Melchizedek at all? If this is all supposed to make us perfect, and, and let's put that in the back of our minds. It won't take long before we get to that. Um, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the, at the altar, Melchizedek. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood, which we've made the point, the king will come from Judah, but the, the priesthood comes through Levi. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. In other words, you know, many, many of the high priests are called and chosen by the people. This priest, the Christ, the, the, our great high priest, was chosen and sent by God himself. Far greater than any of this fleshly command, okay? Uh, for he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So here's the dual picture here. Okay, so for on one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, so a changing of the of the of the original commandment because uh, of its weakness and unprofitableness. In other words, it doesn't make us perfect. These are signs. These are shadows, which we'll get into. But these are signs pointing forward to the Christ, to the culmination of the fulfillment of Christ. Okay, and for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's bringing a, a, in of a better hope. So as much of this annoying, you know, now this ushers in a better hope of actual perfection, of actual glory. Everything this stuff was pointing forward to, these shadows, these representations of the things to come, has now come, has now come. So now we are given a better hope than what these things pointed, pointed toward. Or effectuated, in fact. And inasmuch as he was not made per priest without an oath, yeah, uh, for they had become priests without an oath, but he was, he was, he with an oath by him who said to him. So, in other words, priests would become priests chosen by the people. Okay, he didn't, he didn't make an oath, and the people didn't make an oath. They just chose him, and he became priest. The, now, this is uh, again from the from the hundred and tenth song. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's the oath that God makes before sending our great high priest. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. A surety is a guarantee. Again, we've, we've, met, we've, made, it, we've made the point anyway on occasion that it's kind of like an investment. You know, if you pawn something... You know, in order to ransom it, you have to go and pay the fee, you know, with the interest and so forth. So he is the surety, the guarantee 
of a better covenant. He, he is the one who has actualized that. Also, there were many priests because they were, pre- because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, so Melchizedek continued. You know, he, he was a priest continually. Christ is a priest forever. Forever. Has an unchangeable priesthood. So that which was changed by necessity now will never be changed. Christ is our great high priest. He, that's, that's why we must never not have priests. We are a royal priesthood, which, which the writer of Hebrews will get into. We are all called to be priests. Um, okay. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is our advocate. Christ is our advocate, just like the, the priests were called to intercede for the people, to, to plead for the people, but to pray to God for the people and to offer sacrifices for the people. What the writer is saying is Christ forever, forever, right now, right now intercedes for you at the right hand of God, right now. Now he's not interceding to change God's mind. What he's saying is basically when you see them, See me. That's his constant intercession. That's, that's all the plea any of us need. That is the only thing he needs to say. And that is the only thing we need to say. And that is the only guarantee of a better hope and of a better covenant. Christ has passed through the veil that we might pass along with him right now until glory. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For for the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. In other words, that 110th Psalm came after the law was, was established, okay? But... As, 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 as necessary, and according to the laws, these priests were, they always had to make sacrifices. They had to make a bunch of sacrifices for themselves because they were sinners. And they also had to make a bunch of sacrifices for the people because they're sinners. Christ offered himself once for all. No more offerings. No more sacrifices. He is that sacrifice that all of these sacrifices were pointing forward to. Even the drink offerings, blood, even the thanksgiving offerings, even the free will offerings. Christ embodies all of these offerings ultimately and absolutely and eternally. So much higher than... And remember in that preface that in the beginning of, of the book of Hebrews when we considered last week, He's exalted above the angels. He's always been exalted above the angels. But the writer is making it clear that we must not see Christ as merely a man, as merely the Word made flesh to dwell amongst His people. What we want to see and what we want to start to gather in is the glory, the, the fuller picture of the glory of the only begotten Son of God who was perfected in, in His weakness, in His obedience which he suffered through. Okay. Now, this is the main point of the things we were saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So again, the temple, the tabernacle, all these things are put. The tabernacle was beautiful. The temple was adorned, especially the second one, as we've made as we've made clear. Herod rebuilt it. Many of the walls were of one solid wall, huge, of marble, granite. It was amazing. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the well, it was one of the seven wonders in the ancient world. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. But that was all to point for in fact, if you want to read about the making of the temple that's in Exodus, it goes on and on and on. There's a lot to it. People tend to start yawning and ignore, and it's actually given twice, the, you know, because it's essential. It's important to recognize these things point forward to the true tabernacle, heaven, and his throne. The most holy place is God's throne. That's why the Ark of the Covenant was there to, to symbolize God's throne. Okay. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things. That's what we've been talking about. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So that's in Exodus uh, chapter 25, verse 40. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, Christ, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. All the promises, you know, there are many, many wonderful blessings of God. You know, if you obey, these are all the wonderful blessings you're going to have. If you disobey, this is the truth that's coming your way. However, the greater promise was that which he gave in the garden, promising a seed to crush the serpent's head. Okay, And the promise to Abraham that you, will, you, you are going to have a seed. There is going to be a seed from you. And that seed, you know, you are here to bless all the nations. You are here to be a blessing to all the nations and your seed as well. That's Christ, but that is us through Christ as well. We are here to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. Remember when we were considering Abraham, that's, that's what we tried to emphasize, is that he was blessed to be a blessing. So are we through Christ. So better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, this is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which we have briefly considered. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the, out of the, uh, out, sorry, I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writers pointing back to, we considered that portion of Jeremiah fairly briefly. Well, God is saying, this is a greater promise, far greater promise. There's coming a day. There's coming a day. And that day has already arrived, okay? He has written his law. He has written his, his precepts on our minds and on our hearts. But there is coming a day where we don't need a minister. We don't need a prophet. We don't need a priest. We have our great high priest. We have the absolute prophet. We have the king of kings and lord of lords. But there is coming a day where there will be no need of that. All will know me. All will know me, and um, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more, forever, because of what Christ has done. That's what this writer is saying. Jeremiah was saying this, had no idea how this was going to be accomplished. He knew because God had told him, and so he's saying, thus says the Lord, this is what's coming. I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know where. But this is what's coming. So he was pointing forward to that which he didn't even know. You know, I, I've been trying to say, and it's true. This is, Christ is, what, is who the prophets continued to anticipate. They just didn't know. This, these are shadows of things. These are still mysteries. Remember, the, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. That's what Augustine said. So the Old Testament is, is kind of, is mysterious until you get to the New Testament and it makes all of the Old Testament far clearer and you know it reveals it in the New Testament okay the New Testament is somewhat veiled in the Old Testament you can't understand the Old Testament unless you know the New Testament you can't understand the New Testament unless you know the Old Testament that's why it's one word of God that's why it's whole and one whole word of God that's why when we even consider these terrible accounts of what happens to these people and even some of God's commands that we don't you know we think that we would not do ourselves because we're awesome, that, that those things also pointed to Christ. You know, all of the sufferings of this fallen world 
are pointing to our Savior, pointing to the Savior, that if any of us just took some time out without even knowing anything about the Bible, would realize we need. We need salvation. We need an advocate. We need a prophet. We need a priest. We need a king. We need salvation. Now, then we get to that point, and then it's like, well, all, is, all hope is lost. All such prophet is not here. I don't see a prophet. Until you find his word. Until you find Christ. Then you find salvation. Okay. Let's jump. Okay. Chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be, should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So again, these copies um, are, are really representations. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, like the tabernacle, like the temple, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, not to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as a high priest, uh, as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. So real quickly, this is, what the, this is what the priest would do. The high priest had to sacrifice for himself. He would have to get a young bull, and he also get a ram. The ram was for burnt offering, but he, had, he would have to sacrifice the young bull for himself. And then he would take the blood and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, on the, on the altar, really, in the Holy of Holies, for his absolution, for his sin, once a year. This Day of Atonement is once a year. Then he, they would get two goats, okay? And basically, they would cast lots for, for which one is going to be sacrificed and which one is the scapegoat. Another term. It's very familiarized in our modern language with the scapegoat was, so one was offered as the sacrifice. The other one, the people, really through the high priest, would lay his hand on this goat and confess all of the sins of the people. Okay, obviously, those who are, that are unknown, you know, he wouldn't go through the litany of all the things that all the people had told him and everything. He's just, he's praying for absolution and to transfer all the sins of the people on this goat. And then this goat is sent out into the wilderness to signify when we are saved, when, when Christ, when through Christ, we are truly saved. Our sins are cast out into the wilderness where they belong. We belong as sinners in the wilderness, not in the throne of grace. <laughs> we don't belong in the tabernacle. We don't believe, belong in the courtyard of the temple. We don't believe, belong anywhere near him unless we are indwelt by Christ and unless we are in Christ. He then would have, would have had to uh, suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now... Once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once and for all. Once and for all. And it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. It is appointed for men to die once. After this, the judgment. This is a verse that I hope is implanted and is written on your hearts and on your minds. That's why I continue to tell you there's just coming that day for all of us. There's one thing standing on the other side, there's one person standing on the other side. The judge. He will either be your judge or he will be your advocate. He will either say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Or he will say, Good and faithful servant, come and enter into my rest, which I have prepared for you since the foundation of the world. But the judgment's coming. It is appointed once for men to die, and after that the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. We're all supposed to die once. So he was offered once. To those who eagerly wait for him, to only to those who eagerly wait for him, only to those, and to no, none other, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin. He's not coming to do away with sin again. He offered himself once for all, and that time when he comes, when he returns, it is not to offer himself again. It is to bring his people to glory. 
for absolute salvation. That's why salvation didn't stop at the cross. In one sense, we've been Satan made this clear. In one sense, we've been saved since the foundation of the world. He wrote all of our names in the book of life in eternity. Okay? And then Christ came to save us. So in one sense, we are saved. So in one sense, we were saved since the foundation of the world. In another sense, we are saved now. And in another sense, we are being saved through sanctification. Okay? We're being conformed more and more into the likeness of our Savior until that is absolutely culminated by His return, by His coming. And salvation is absolutely complete and we are made whole and perfected and pure before the throne of God. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then... Would they not have ceased to be offered? <laughs> because, right, I mean, if they offered it once and that did it, why wouldn't they just offer it once? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away of sins. We've made that clear. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. There's a psalm. It's from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. David himself wrote this. And this is obviously only applicable to Christ. No Melchizedek, no David, no Solomon, no, no Paul, no James, no any of them. This is only for Christ. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You made, it, you made them and you commanded them to point forward to me, to Christ, to Christ, but a body you have prepared for me. The word made flesh. A body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. This doesn't take away sin. The blood and bulls and goats, the sacrificial system, doesn't do anything for sins. It's a type. It's a shadow of the things to come, of the Christ to come. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, my Father. My meat and my drink is to do the will of my Father. And nothing else, not to do the will of men, not to even do my own will. I'm suffering here in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're recording my will, well, this cup will pass. But I am here to do your will, my Father. Oh God, you have prepared a body for me. It has been written in the book. The book has been is written about me, which we've, which we've considered when the priests and the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were berating Jesus and, and saying he knows nothing about the Scripture and so forth. Jesus says, Moses wrote about me, which is an absolute condemnation of these men. You know, these were the expert, learned men of the day. They thought they knew the Bible inside and out, and nobody is going to tell them any differently. That's why I've tried to emphasize when we come to the Bible, when we are more familiar with our Bible, when we come to these familiar passages, we must go back as if it's the first time we've read these things. And it's amazing. I've been, you know, considering the Word of God for almost 20 years. And I'm still kind of waiting in the shallow end, okay? I'm, you know, I, 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 all of this time, I have sought to plunge the depths of the Word of God. And I'm still kind of meandering about in the shallow end. There is no, there's no way to exhaust the Word of God. You will always glean something. You will always glean something. Okay, but these men just thought they put th their own views, which many people do today. Many people do today. They take a part of Scripture or they infuse their own belief systems into the Bible to make it say something it's not saying, take everything out of context, and that's what the Pharisees were doing. Okay, ultimately the whole Bible is about Christ. So, going back to, instead of, rather than considering the Word of God to see how it applies to us, that is not why we have the Word of God. We have the Word of God to know who God is. <laughs> to know our Savior. That is our application. You know, this, this modern way of, of seeking a life application of sermons and, and reading your Word of God. When you read your Word of God, 
Do not seek how it applies to your particular life. Seek Christ, and all these other things will be added unto you. Seek your Savior. Follow your Savior. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. In other words, he took away the sacrifices of bulls and goats to establish the second. The, sacrifices, the sacrifice of the Christ, the Lamb of God, the perfect, the perfect unblemished Lamb of God. Okay. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God as king. That's one of the little glimpses before we get to it next week. As king. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, like we said in, in, in the beginning of that 110 psalm. For, for by one offering he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I, this is going back to Jeremiah. Uh, I will put my laws into their hearts and, into, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where is there remission of these? Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Once the sin is remitted, once there is a remission of sins, there's no need for continual sacrifice. In another place in, in, in chapter 9, it actually says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins and there's so much there i'd love to take the time to speak about but god willing we will consider that another day but without the shedding of blood there was no remission of sins therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest holiest by the blood of jesus again the most holy place ultimately the throne of god therefore having boldness to enter remember he was he was saying let us with boldness enter the throne of grace by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh that is his flesh. That's the veil. <laughs> and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, baptized, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed, baptized, with pure water. Let us hold fast. The now, this is the true baptism, okay? This is the real baptism. Even our baptisms, even the Lord's Supper, points to Christ. He is the Lord of baptism. He is the Lord of the Eucharist. So these are types and shadows of even that. The baptism is his spirit. It's him sprinkling his blood upon our souls and spirit to be saved for absolute salvation. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised, for he who promised is faithful not because we're faithful not because david's faithful and because mary's faithful and because joseph was faithful not because paul was faithful because god is faithful let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching Hey? Now that we look forward to Christ's return, now what we do is never forsake the assembly of believers. And we exhort, we encourage one another because we know that day is coming. Okay. Now, as we considered Melchizedek, I want to talk about something else, but now we're pressed with time. So, Melchizedek came in, 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 to Abraham with bread and wine. Okay. Let's remember the Lord's Supper there, okay? Now, the Bible says in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it says, the life of the flesh is the blood. I'll be honest with you, that was the first thing that started turning me toward God. When I saw that, everything else kind of opened up. But all these sacrifices, that's kind of what, I was kind of a Jew in the beginning, okay? But, but I saw the necessity Life is in the blood. Therefore, blood needed to be poured out. Without the, the, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And in that, you know, very elementary time in my walk, I knew, I knew 
There must be a blood sacrifice. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Now John chapter 6 verses 53 through 58. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my drink is drink indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Christ's flesh and blood means eternal life. All of these sacrifices, all the, the life is in the blood. Since he shed his blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the shedding of blood of, of goats and bulls don't remit any kind of sins. It must be the shedding of a perfect, righteous, altogether, absolutely obedient Savior. And he has come. And now he, his flesh is that bread which came from heaven. His blood is that divine wine poured out as a drink offering for sin. All of these, all of, all of our righteousness, all of our, all of our, the Bible also says, our righteousness is like filthy rags. And just so you know, well, filthy rags, um, uh, let, let's just say it was used for the menstrual cycle for females. That's what filthy rags are. So, all our righteousness is filthy rags until we consume the bread and the wine of our Savior. Then we have perfect, pure righteousness. We have perfect, pure salvation until it's realized when He returns. So, now, as we're pressed for time, and I'm sorry. However, now, next week, and I want you to kind of consider, read, read all of Hebrews, read the whole book of Hebrews. But as, as we consider this Melchizedek, as we consider Christ being the priest in the order of Melchizedek, let's remember the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Let's just put that in the back of our minds as we approach next week, as we consider Christ as king. And then finally, God willing, we will consider the nativity story again why didn't Christ, why didn't god just send his son at 33 years old and hang him on a cross he had to come just like we do divinely through the spirit of god okay but he had to come in the womb we are all born in sin david even says clearly in his psalm in my i was even in my mother's womb i was a sinner okay we we are the sons and daughters of adam since christ was begotten of his father and wasn't generated like sinful man and woman. He came in the flesh and he came like we do, but not altogether like we do. You know, he's divine. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But just because, you know, his his divine nature was also sent down, which is completely obviously doesn't apply to us. That, that doesn't make him not able to be compassionate to our sufferings. Even, again, it's the same thing. He's, he's our great high priest who can sympathize us, with us even more than just a typical man. He is without sin. He is without sin. He is here to be your advocate. He is here to intercede for you. He is here to save you and to hold you close. Christ did not come to save you and then just leave you to wander off wherever you want to go. Christ has come to save you, to bring you to himself, to enjoy you, and you might enjoy him forever. Forever. That's the salvation. This Christmas, this baby in a manger. <laughs> this is an eternal paradigm. We have such a brief moment upon this earth. And we see this, that's all there is. That is not so. All of this, even this, even this assembly, even this, this worship of God, this consideration of His Word is a shadow, is nothing but a shadow of the glory and the true assembly of all believers in Christ. 
in glory. Praise God. What an amazing Savior we serve. What an amazing, tremendous God who has condescended to send his Son to suffer for us, that we might be his inheritance, that we might be sons and daughters of the Most High God, that we might be eternally kings and priests forever. Because he's come, because he's come and perfectly fulfilled all these things, done that which we didn't, we aren't able to do, and some of which we just didn't even know needed to be done. But now that Christ has done it, we see that these things are necessary. Okay? So, as we go into the, our, our Christmas Eve, uh-oh, we need to talk about that. However, as we, as we, oh no, that's right. Yes, because that's going to be Sunday. Yes, okay, so we'll, we need to plan some things. That's, okay, it's intramural debate. Okay, our discussion. Um, so, as we go into next week, just before Christmas, we need to see more fully the culmination of who Christ is of who Christ is, is, not just was, he, he who was and is, is coming. So we must know our Savior. We must strive to know nothing else. We must not forsake the assembly. We must not forsake his worship. We must not forsake boldly entering into the throne of grace. We must, with reverence, true reverence and affection, an undying affection to our Savior, approach the most holy place in all of eternity, in all of the heavens of heavens, and all the worlds around us, and all the stars, and all the moons, and all the rest. There's one place, there's one place culminating all of these things, from which all these things came. That, that we have been granted access there to the throne of God, okay? You know, as trepidatious as we would be to go before any earthly king or any kind of ruler, that kind of a thing, he is the eternal ruler of heaven and earth and all things that are made. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Christ himself, as we've seen in the Gospel of John. Let us, with boldness, and reverence enter into that most holy place now and forever praise god let's pray our father and our god pray that the words of a foolish man might be made complete and holy in your sight and in the ears of your people father we lift up your testimony we lift up our voices our hearts and our souls all of what we are and who we are through you, to glorify you, to sing your praises without end in our hearts and by our lips. Father, you are the true God and there is salvation in none other. And you are so wonderful, full of wonder, full of grace, full of truth. I ask that you Set in us a blaze to seek you, to follow after you, that we might not wander to the left hand or to the right hand. We might walk that narrow road with our Savior into the most holy place, your great throne of grace. It's in your Son's name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope and pray this has blessed you in your walk with God, and we hope you join us again next week. You have been listening to Sea of Fire Ministries, where the Word of God is life.